screen and data becomes incredibly important because it's become so important in our lives. We're all living our lives through screens. We're all living our lives through data. We're experiencing the world through aggregated data. And we're all told the power of that. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Moritz Stefana and I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. In fact, I work as a self-employed truth and beauty operator out of my office here in the countryside in the beautiful north of Germany. <laughs> yes, and I am Enrico Bertini. I am a professor at NYU in New York City where I do research and teach data visualization. Right. And on this podcast, we talk about data visualization, data analysis, and generally the role data plays in our lives. And usually we do that together with a guest we invite on the show. But before we start, a quick note. Our podcast is listener supported, so there's no ads. And if you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us with recurring payments on patreon.com slash data stories. Or if you prefer, you also have an option to send one-time donations on paypal.me slash data stories. Yeah, and any contribution is really super appreciated. If you don't have any spare money, just retweet our announcements or follow us on social media. That's that's fine too. So anything helps uh, to <laughs> keep the show running. Uh, anyways, uh, enough about us and the show. Let's get started with our guest. Uh, we have a very special guest today, uh, David Sheldon Hicks. Hi, David. Hi, David. Hello, thank you for having me. So, David is a bit from a different field from what we usually draw our guests from, but you'll see in a minute how related it actually is to what we do. So, David, can you tell us a bit about what you do uh, and what your company, Territory Studio, does? Sure. So, um, yeah, my name's David. We've um, been running Territory Studio now for nine years, almost ten years, summer next year, which is really exciting. And we... I mean, I always struggle with describing what we do, but um, and because people just don't believe us. But essentially, we are a specialist in using data, using technology, holograms, fictional user interfaces in storytelling, most specifically for film. But we work across all sorts of different projects. Um, we've we've been fortunate to work with charities and automotive companies, computer games, but really using that vision of the future and using data and technology to tell those stories, essentially. Right. And of course, this is something we're super interested in because as data visualization specialists, we're often actually asked to make something look like Age of Ultron or, you know, like futuristic <laughs> and, and like information rich. And so I think our like clients often like have these Hollywood, you know, science fiction scenes in mind when they think about the future of data interaction. And so I think the work you do often really shapes also how we develop technology, you know, based on what the, these future visions are. So just to give people an idea, like, can you tell us a few of the more like well-known movies maybe that, that you were part of with your work? Yeah, sure. So um, it's actually quite scary to me that you um, see our work as, 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 as kind of influencing the work that you do. I think it's true. Uh, uh, yeah. um, so in terms of the sci-fi and fictional side of things that we've been working on most recently, we've been really proud of working on Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, 
that was a very cool project. And then the Martian, Ex Machina, um, Guardians of the Galaxy. We've really been blessed with some quite special projects. More recently, we worked on Black Mirror. So wow. it's yeah. um, it's quite a long credit list. And um, it almost sounds uh, made up when I say it out loud. But yeah, we're, we're very, very fortunate. This is awesome. So can you tell us a bit how this type of work like works like how do you work with the directors or the producers like what's your brief or how what's the process do you come in at the end and you know just fit in the screens to whatever the actors do or how are you involved in these productions really so it can really change from project to project i guess there's a few key examples as to how it might work for us so with something like the martian um we were approached just as the script was completing um, and we got a read of the script, understood the intent of the movie. Obviously, we did our research and read the book as well. And then we went and sat with the art department. And the art department are really responsible for the physical build of the film sets. Mm -hmm. So anything that is put in front of the camera and the actors at the time of shooting. And often our work is actually live in front of the actors. It's not put in afterwards on ah, green okay. screen. It's it's mm -hmm. it's a practical... Like um, a prop. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so with The Martian, you've got those scenes with the large mission control and the large um, screens there and also the ball pen mm -hmm. where you might have 200 different workstations. And what we're doing there is we're trying to understand the data that NASA might put on those screens. So there's a research phase mm -hmm. where, and, and Ridley Scott was really smart in doing this. He put us in touch with a whole team at um, Jet Propulsion Labs in the US and a, and a gentleman, Dave Lavery, who heads up one of those teams, was really generous with his time. And he would just spend hours with us on the phone, write really long emails, just explaining <laughs> what all that data means and how how their roles interact with that data and what mm -hmm. it is that they're looking for and then how there might be a knock-on effect. Um, and the, the fascinating thing that I found around the way that NASA works is they don't use too much in the way of software interpretation of that data. Actually, that what they really want to understand is the validity of the data mm -hmm. that's coming through, how much can it be trusted and how much interpretation do they have to apply to that. So we spent a lot of time truly trying to understand the roles at NASA and then the sorts of data that they're looking at. But then you have this challenge, of course, which is you have a film director that needs to entertain and tell a story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we sit between those two roles, really. We're, not, we're wanting to not underplay just the incredible complexity that it would take in, you know, sending someone up to Mars and then recalculating um, the trajectory of getting somebody to slingshot around the earth and back to, <laughs> back to Mars in the, in the time window. And you really can't underplay that because not many people believe you'd want to go back for Matt Damon. Um, so that's often a trick, but they, they truly wanted to use this as a film that as much as possible could be bedded in reality. And in mm -hmm. some ways based on their projections for where technology, um, and the types of data that they'd be looking at would be 50 years or so in the future. So we, we wanted to be true to them. And, um, you know, so often with our more fantastical films, we're having to make data up, you know, because data doesn't exist for some of the things that we're doing. Um, but in this case, we just had 
somebody willing to feed us all of that data, feed us the correct calculations oh, wow. to go up on those screens. Wow, uh, that's cool. Yeah. So that, you know, we celebrate those kind of external collaborations whenever we can get them because in all honesty it, it means that we're doing less work so um <laughs> if we can if we can spend less time yeah, guessing yeah, what the data might have be just a much more interesting texture than anything yeah. made up right it's like more like more interesting simply yeah and i think the imperfections in that data as uh -huh. well are just just more authentic to the storytelling yeah. so yeah. i think so us understanding that data and how people use it and interpret it was was really key but then again then we're, we're sitting at this visual translation for Ridley to understand when he uses particular things to tell a point in the story beat um, and that's really tricky because it some of this stuff isn't immediately recognizable to a mass audience so for certain specialists in the area yes that might be absolutely the way the way that they would do things but how do you in a three second beat tell that moment really concisely so story and authenticity sometimes come up against one another and we have to find just interesting solutions for that that hopefully doesn't take us too far away of reality, from reality but equally still tells that story effectively and efficiently. Um, and, and so that was, that was the tightrope that we trod. Whereas with a movie like, let's say, Ready Player One or Guardians of the Galaxy, what you're doing is you're using data as a as a form of expression really you're thinking about the characters in the film you're thinking about the worlds that are being built and you're using the representation of data as a means to talking about that person's role it mm -hmm. might it might even say something about their their point in society in blade runner we had different technologies and different data sets that would only be accessible across certain strata in society and and the elites you know the corporate elites would have a very bespoke um, and and unique version of that data set as opposed to everyone else that might have access to another, which is not too dissimilar from reality today, I would say. I think, you know, unique access to data just means that um, <laughs> certain people have a very unique and um, advantageous view of the world. <laughs> so, um, so, so we really use it as an expression of character in place um, and it becomes far more... Um, textual than it does become um true true to the realities of it then then we find that actually we still need to keep to the formatting of data to keep it grounded to keep it bedded and so that we don't completely lose the audience of course if you're designing a, an interface and a data set for a walking talking tree there's not an awful lot of research that we can do around that <laughs> um but we we can base it on a character that might be looking at navigation systems mm. and, and, and make some assumptions around the kind of the basic design DNA that might fall into that. So we're constantly playing between those opposites. I think that's a challenge, right? It needs to be plausible and, and like sufficiently complex, <laughs> but at the same time often it's just visible like for half a second. So people yeah. need to get the gist of it without even thinking, right? And I think that's, it seems like such a huge challenge really. Yeah, it has to be a visual shorthand, um, uh -huh. and some and like some a signal more than actually a, a, a formulated design, really more like a, a sign of sorts. Absolutely, absolutely, because filmmaking is it does have to be very efficient. It has to get a lot across in a in a short space of time. Um, but but we always want to build in these layers of meaning. So as a team, we will always do this research and we will always try to, when, when given the time and um, the all clear in terms of 
information security and NDAs and all those sorts of things. We will speak to, um, you know, we'll speak to NASA. We will speak to um, military technology specialists, people that can give us a unique insight in terms of where technology is headed or where data might be used um, for certain roles um, uh, within a film. And that's crucial to us because we found that by really thinking about the actor's character and then translating that back to reality and understanding real-world roles, we immediately bleed out design that has meaning. We, you know, through osmosis almost, we're not overthinking Mm -hmm. the design. It kind of naturally flows. So the more and more research we can do, the more that we can bed ourselves in reality and truly understand the material that we're designing for, the better that we find our work. And, And that's so important to film because there's... There's this sense that if you get it right, people will come back and watch it and watch it over and over yeah, again, yeah. and they will and discover those. Understand all the details, and yeah, and it's also so satisfying if all the details make sense and not like you look into the details and you realize, oh, it was just made up, <laughs> you know. So. <laughs> yeah, so we always try and hold our stand, or hold ourselves to a high standard of design, mm. but sometimes yeah. timeframes really do work against us, and we have to, you know, fl- yeah. flow in data that's quite generic, but hopefully has enough research behind it that at least it formats in the right way. Yeah. Um, that's always our yeah. hope. So one thing I was wondering, David, is how, where do you take inspirations for your user interfaces and do you actually end up interacting with some researchers maybe to get inspiration about what is the current cutting edge of research in, in this space, right? Yeah, uh, I think there, there's an interesting interplay between different figures, right? So I guess some researchers take inspirations from from science fiction, right? But then maybe people like you may go back to researchers and and see what they are currently doing. So I'm, I'm yeah. curious if this happens in your case. Yeah, so um, we do whenever possible. We will we will try and use, um, like I say, external consultants. To yeah. influence the work that we're doing um, on Ex Machina, that you know, that was a good notable example. We used a code consultant, um, and the code consultant confessed that by no <laughs> means would he know what the code looks like for <laughs> machine learning and kind of deep thinking and uh, a female robotic character. But he could make a good guess in terms of the formatting of the code mm-hmm. and some of the uh-huh. the context was used. And the beautiful thing about working with him is he was able to give us a couple of Easter eggs. So that when people paused it on the DVD, they could compile the code and run a couple of programs that would send them to books about um, artificial intelligence. (laughs) So those kind of extra just levels of detail for the people that care. Mm -hmm. And they're really the people that we want to reward with some of the work that we're doing. Um, It's it's lovely to drop in those kind of extra levels of meaning when we can. Mm -hmm. How about the interaction part? So... um Minority Report, maybe, you know, it's one of, <laughs> probably one of these things you have, I might guess a love-hate relationship or a plain-hate relationship, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> well, um, I think the plain-hate, the, yeah, the, the hate relationship comes from the fact that everyone references it. Exactly. Um, yeah. the, the beautiful thing about film directors is they always reference it as, let's not, let's not <laughs> go over the same ground. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's the, the same with Iron Man. Um Whilst they're wonderful examples, directors are always looking for their next unique opportunity to create something new. Mm-hmm. So they're a, a wonderful client in that respect. The tricky thing is, you know, having to rec- recreate the wheel every time is is, is quite a tiring challenge. Um, sure. 
But Minority Report was wonderful in that it started to help people think about data and interactions beyond the obvious in storytelling. So the reality in our field, I guess, was that before Minority Report and a few other examples, there's a film called The Island um, that also had a wonderful touchscreen display mm. um, and object-based interactions, which which worked really well, which is a bit before Minority Report. It's the first example I can think of. Those films really considered, well, that the way that people use data at the moment is really boring. Um, you know, I don't really want to watch a film about someone typing at a keyboard and, and using an Excel spreadsheet. doesn't sound particularly entertaining. <laughs> but you have this problem in that film directors have to echo our experiences of the world now. They're making, you know, whilst they might be talking about science fiction, it's actually being used as a, as a way to have a conversation about where we're headed yeah. and where we are now. Yeah. So screen and data becomes incredibly important because it's become so important mm. in our lives. Mm. Mm. We're all living our lives through screens. We're all living our lives through data. We're experiencing the world through aggregated data. And we're all told the power of that and the, and the, the, the stories telling opportunity. So directors can't shy away from, from this format. They can't shy away from the need mm -hmm. to use it in their films. But mm. even in a non-science fiction setting, you still need to think about yeah. how do I show that that WhatsApp message somebody receives. Yeah, or, yeah right? exactly. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, we worked with Charlie Brooker last year and on, on Black Mirror, and he's, he's, he's a great example of really thinking about the, the impact of technology on our lives and what that means for storytelling. So that's, mm -hmm. that's been fascinating to see his process. But in, in fact, all the directors and showrunners that we work with, they all think in that way. And they're looking for their unique opportunity to make comment on our use of technology, what it says about society and where we're all headed. So um, so it, it, it's incredibly important to them and they, they can't repeat old ground. But the beautiful thing about Minority Report is it gave the actors an opportunity to be more physical and to be mm. more expressive. And mm -hmm. so we weren't over the shoulder looking down at their screen. We were seeing the data and the content at the same time that we were seeing Tom Cruise waving his hands around. And suddenly that becomes a really interesting narrative device. Yeah. So that really, you know, laid out the gauntlet. That said to us, how do we how do we make our daily roles in terms of using data and, and engaging with screens and, and use of technology? How do we make that engaging for entertainment purposes and telling a story? And that's really been our challenge ever since at Territory Studio. We are constantly thinking about how do we stay authentic to the medium, but then how do we kind of keep pushing it? Mm. And for me, the kind of the high point is creating work that's truly iconic, that lives with people. Um, I've worked on a few James Bond films now, and whilst they're all cutting edge, they date incredibly quickly. Uh -huh. And yeah. that's not just the, the, our work. I think that's, you know, the, the film in general, it's such a unique slice in time. And I think that's okay. You know, I think it's fine for, we almost look back on that work with nostalgia. We can date a movie mm -hmm. just very quickly looking, looking at some of those films. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think if we can, creating iconic work that resonates with people for time is is a is a great ambition to have and that's that's one that we hold really true to our heart so mm -hmm. when blade runner came through you know that was a unique opportunity to not only work on just an incredible film ip um with an incredible director but it was a chance to create some work that had real meaning in the film the use of technology was part of that world building the data that they were looking at was saying something about the state of society and just really questioning, is this where we all want to be headed? 
And that was a fascinating question to think about. Yeah, and I think that's such a good example. Like you mentioned, the 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 aging aspect of certain looks, or the the how how quickly something looks dated or not. And I think probably <laughs> your industry is like very short lived in that you say like, oh, that's so spring twenty eighteen or something like this, right? And so, how do you how do you keep things fresh, and how do you like also escape maybe the typical visual cliches and tropes? people might often go for when they first think of like future user interfaces there's a beautiful like 99 invisible um episode where they talk about that most future screens are, are mostly blue like blue seems to be the color of the future and <laughs> yeah. but by repeating it again and again it becomes old and and then you need something fresh right and yeah. how, how do you how do you keep things fresh well, I mean, first of all, we listened to that blog, um, yeah. and then we, um, so our first project <laughs> ever at Territory <laughs> was, uh, for Prometheus and we made them all pink yeah, and orange, yeah. uh, <laughs> as a, as a reaction to that. Um, and in Guardians of the Galaxy, we used every single palette that we possibly could because it was such a, a luminous, <laughs> vibrant palette yeah. for the film. Mm. So I think we always question our process. I think that's kind of the key and to be, be very aware of your influences. I think what we've learned from working with film directors, especially, is to question your your springboard, your brief. I think kind of forming the right brief at the very beginning becomes very important to that. And then just being aware of your environmental um, conditions that maybe could influence your creative process. So, you know, Ridley Scott, when he was briefing us in on Prometheus, said, just please forget about Minority Report, get off Pinterest, ignore Instagram, <laughs> um, forget about <laughs> Iron Man. What I want, you know, what, when I briefed, you know, talked to Geiger and working with Geiger originally, it was all about nature and nature meeting machines. Now, you're already working with the machines. So how do we bring some nature to that? And he was fascinated by the colorways, the movements, the dynamic systems that you see in coral reefs and underwater sea life. Mm -hmm. So he really wanted that to be an inspiration. And that's quite an artistic inspiration to the way in which we use data in the film. And you can see that in the kind of the textual qualities of the holograms and the the screens that we created. There's a real luminosity and color overlays and vibrancy to it all that steps away from as much as possible the cyan and everything. So, so that's something that I've learned from all film directors is to truly, you know, get the brief right at the beginning and give your team a fighting chance that they can create something original. I think one of the other things is like we were, we've kind of covered already is this notion of just not living in your world, but understanding the people that truly are going to be using this data in a real world context. So talking to NASA, working with the military. You know, a good friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine now, um, it works at an anti-terrorism unit um, in London. So just pulling on all these other outside influences that take you away from Photoshop and Illustrator, take you away from what can be done with the tools and start understanding the roles and the ways in which that data will be used. That immediately gives you a different way of approaching each project. So I think that's yeah. key. And I think just turning off Instagram, turning off Pinterest, not following the trends yep. has, has to be the way that you achieve that. Yeah, David, I have a question regarding right, the relationship between future or futuristic interfaces and what actually ends up becoming real, real interfaces, real products. I think there is a tension there between, say, what is feasible or not feasible yet from the technological standpoint 
and and what is actually not not a good interface, right? <laughs> and <laughs> and I think some a couple of good examples of what is happening right now. I think voice interfaces and VR, AR have been around for a little bit, right? And used to be considered futuristic, and now they're kind of like taking over a little mm. bit. So th- there's a little bit of attention there. So what, what's your what's your take there? Yeah, so I think actually we're running at similar problems, and and because we are, because we are maybe a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of how quickly we can deliver. Film, yeah. film release those ideas first, and mm. then products come through afterwards. Yeah. The reason I know this is because we work, work across both. Mm. Um, <laughs> so we're working with automotive companies. We're working with Sony and Microsoft. You know, mm. Mm. so we. We're all looking at the same white papers. We're all looking at where technology is headed. We're all understanding the trajectory. And so you're building out design solutions for that. Also, these tech companies have realized that um, you need to build out a new team solution, a new creative team solution for some of these new technologies coming through. You know, historically, when we thought about data and user interfaces, it's been mostly 2D. And it's and it's been a use. A graphic design has really been kind of the leading design logic that's prevailed. Mm. Um, obviously, human centered design is coming from a slightly different place, but they're all skill sets that feel quite familiar. You know, they're coming from other um, areas of kind of strategy or data visualization, or they're they're all kind of pre established. I think with some of these new technologies that's coming through, there needs to be a different team mix. Um, I'm definitely seeing this with VR and AR. The assumption that we can just take UI and UX from existing skill sets and apply that over the top of video content is just, it's just not right. Um, I actually think that spatial design needs to really come into this and actually architects can add a lot to this conversation or industrial designers. I think the work, you know, the work that we were doing with Steven Spielberg on Ready Player One, he was really interested in object-based um, systems that became mm. they got away from a scrolling menu, and you just started thinking about maybe sharing a file in the same way that you might throw someone an apple. Um, it it <laughs> it has there's a different opportunity there, and why do we assume that the same layer of, and use of data and interaction can be applied? You know that we're seeing with flat screen work. I don't I don't think that's the case, and I think it's a it's a missed opportunity. But I think we're running at the same. We're applying a, the same solution because we've got the same creative team, and I think we need to change that a little bit. I do think there's a wonderful opportunity for bringing together maybe a film director, a game designer, and an architect, mm-hmm. and seeing what solutions would come from that team. I think that would be really interesting. Um, and we've been playing with that here because we get to build out bespoke teams for film projects. We then take those teams, augment them a little bit and apply them to real world projects. And it's creating some really interesting results and things that we're getting to solutions far quicker because we're getting through all the bad ideas far quicker too. Um, <laughs> and it's just applying several different lenses on the same problem. And I, and I think it's, it's, it's a really fun and interesting way of working. And because we've learned so much from external consultants and fully researching the problem, it's, it's been a, it's been a really fun way to work, but. Yeah, I think um I think the that problem is 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 a unique one, it's a new one and I think um I think somebody will crack it soon, but I still don't think it's been quite <laughs> solved yet. Yeah, yeah. But I was thinking of that too when you mentioned set design that 
well, a part of the set is already virtual, like is done in post. And then you have your on-screen designs that are part of the physical set and everything starts to blend, right? And at some point you're just creating this world, you know, and you just give the actors an environment to play in. But the the whole world of the movie at some point is is digital, right? And so that's that's a really interesting way of of telling stories. That's so bizarre, actually, because we have clients in very different sectors. So... Um, we've got a lot of games clients, we've got a lot of film clients, TV clients, but we've also got, you know, tech brands and automotive brands. Uh-huh. And I can just see a moment when all these conversations merge, bizarrely. Mm. You know, yeah. I think digital product specialists, uh, you know, data scientists, storytellers, it's all getting incredibly close. <laughs> um, and I think there could be a lot more sharing of ideas across those different fields. Mm-hmm. Um, to move us forward. It's kind of like technological tipping point when <laughs> things converge all at once, right? It definitely is. It definitely is. And I think the tools are starting to get out of the way. That's that's the wonderful thing. Um, I think people see sometimes digital tools as actually a barrier, but actually if your knowledge base is at a good point, they just kind of meld away in the same way that a pencil and paper does. So if you can remove the level of translation then i think um you can just focus on the creativity and the ideas and you're in a much better place equally i was talking to a friend more recently who actually argued the opposite and i think there's some truth in this too which is the investment that it takes to learn say a musical instrument you you earning those stripes you um, getting to a level of specialism and experience that can only be learned through years and years of really hard work. Hmm. If you would like publish a violin now, everybody would say, I don't get it. It's like, it doesn't work, you know, it's yeah. way too much work to, to learn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think there's something in that. I think that kind of um, challenging people to get past an interface just it has reward in and of itself. So kind of learning a musical instrument or learning an interface and learning a level of specialism mm. and nuance, um, that can be a really special thing too. So I think things will start to fragment out and section out and it will become a really interesting um, time in the next 10 years. I'm, I'm wondering if this is what is happening with, with voice interfaces, right? Um, I used to be, at least for me personally, used to be like, I never used voice at all, but now after seeing Alexa for some time, right? Uh, now I go back. Uh, now I'm using Siri, right? And I did and never used it for for many many years, right? So there's also this social component that as you see more people using a certain technology, now you got you try to go the extra mile and learn a little bit how to use it, and the more you use it, the, the easier it gets. So it's like. I think we we maybe sometimes make the mistake of thinking that using a mouse and a and a, and a keyboard and a screen just came natural to us. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely there's definitely moments of um, transparency that's coming through with voice that's incredible. Um, obviously, I struggle with contributing to voice because it doesn't <laughs> leave me with much work in a film. But sure. I thought I thought her was a really interesting movie. Mm. You know, building up a relationship with an OS and talking yeah. to it the whole time. Space can, Odyssey as well. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah far is. better reference. Thank you. I think that they're all really, really interesting, and I think that transparency and that um, just that always-on digital layer 
I think that's just going to come through more and more where you have displays embedded in surfaces. Mm. So it looks like a wooden table, but when you choose, it just suddenly becomes a, a, a surface, you know, a digital surface that you can work with. So you don't really need to have devices. You maybe go up to something, a wall or um, a table, and it knows who you are, and it automatically feeds you all of the software systems that you need for that day. Yeah. Yeah, and in order to show it, you always have to make it like tangible and visible, right? I, I was just thinking, like, if the ultimate evolution is brain-computer interfaces, this would be really hard to <laughs> yeah. to show, right? And like this, um, or th the same, of course, with Minority Report. You know, with all these big gestures in space. You know, it's everybody sees what you're looking at. Everybody sees what you're doing. This, in reality, it wouldn't work for your private email, right? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I think Minority Report would really annoy me because you know it just looks like exercise that looks like you, you know i don't need Everybody that on top of working massive yeah. arms like yeah. <laughs> biceps um. that's me selling me a dream i think yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah what are some some classic future data inf yeah. interfaces from the past like you know this is, I, i love just retro futurism like so much <laughs> like like what what are some total classics that maybe we missed out on or where you say oh that, that was really really good and maybe underrated at the time and, and we just realized now how, how how well put together that old vision of the future was like yeah. what are some of your favorites well the the one that sticks out to me from my childhood is war games which is mm -hmm. um mm. about a teenage boy with a you know, a dial-up modem, and some of our listeners might not know what that is, but <laughs> essentially it was a modem that connected to your telephone line and made a very funny sound before logging in. Um, so that was the early <laughs> yeah. days of internet. And the story goes that this teenage hacker hacked into the nuclear control system um, of the US government and simulates World War Three, which obviously causes lots of panic and pandemonium. Um <laughs> But it was my first exposure to seeing how the depiction of data on screens really had a significant meaning in that storytelling moment that couldn't really be told any other way. Um, you know, it, there are moments in a film where I think only dialogue will do or character interaction. You know, and most of the time we want to see people. Um, but there are other moments that it has to be a big visual effects shot. You know, I need to see the Death Star blowing up. I don't want to hear somebody telling me about that. I want to see it. And there are just other moments where only data will really effectively tell that story beat. And so for me, that film, um, and I think also things like Star Wars, you know, if you think about Star Wars and the, the mission briefing, when they're kind of approaching the Death Star to kind of, send that torpedo down the little um, down the little shaft. You had to use data to tell that story. That had to be a visualization. It couldn't really be described in any other way. And there's a, you know, with the countdown to the Death Star coming around the moon and and um, and destroying the rebel base, all of those moments are kind of really told with um, data and information. And I think that's quite wonderful that a graphic designer or a data visualization tool can be used to tell quite a significant moment in a film mm -hmm. the other one that really sticks out to me and i think is probably the reason that territory studio even exists is the moment where r2d2 projects a hologram of princess leia to obi-wan mm -hmm. kenobi and luke skywalker and at that moment i thought i want that <laughs> i want 3d holograms for real um <clears throat> 
I just think that seeing stories told, projected in front of an audience in the same way that you might go to a theatre in the round mm. and three-dimensionally people are there, vehicles are there, worlds are being built in full colour, but you can see that as a shared experience and it's all three-dimensional with all the polish that you get from filmmaking, but all of the dyna- dynamism that you get from theatre and 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 live performance i think that would be truly special so mm-hmm. so that captured me that moment and then the 3d chess that's on the millennium falcon those those two moments really captured me and i just thought that's that's a wonderful dream um and so when we ended up working on things like ghost in the shell where we were creating the holograms for the cityscapes or holographic displays more recently for ready player one and pacific rim that was my moment to kind of, you know, dive into a little bit of that daydreaming and play back what that could look like. And um, and I'm sure we're not far from it now. It feels like technology and experiments and R&D projects are coming through that in my lifetime I might see a three-dimensional projection of a story or a three-dimensional articulation of a key bit of data. And that three dimensions might actually change all of our interpretations of that, that bit of information and mm-hmm. change something for the good or, you know, whatever it might be. But I think that's, that's fascinating. I find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. Is that ultimately your vision that we are all in this space? Like there's like a virtual space overlaid the, the, the real world and we all experience that virtual layer together. Is that sort of your, your perfect vision for how to, how to consume your creations ultimately? I think so. Somebody said to me, "Why am I so hung up on holograms?" And I and I, <laughs> yeah. I am, what is it um, with you and the holograms? <laughs> yeah, Mr. Holograms over here. Um, holograms are cool. I can see it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm excited by paradigm shifts. I think that's what truly inspires me. So, yeah. um, I remember when I was graduating from university, I was really interested in the deconstructivist movement. So, um, you know, people like. Um, Carl Jenks or, or um, uh, you know, some of the architects that are working in those fields where um, it was a complete shift. They were moving on from postmodernism and to a completely different field. And I think mm. technology inspires that. If you think about the Gutenberg Bible and movable type mm. or photography and its impact on fine artists, those shifts in technology or those shifts in techniques and tools or just the change in a, a structure in some way it shifts the creative um, community it shifts the design community and suddenly you have to respond in a completely different way and it just creates this flurry of energy and brand new work and that fascinates me i think that mm, mm. that technology shift that inspires creativity is just um it's just beautiful and i like being a part of that i think we we really relish the kind of the, the, the constant shifting that we're seeing at the moment, the constant innovation that's coming out globally. And if we can apply design and data and animation to that um, and ride that wave, we'll constantly be producing work, hopefully, that um, really resonates with people and, and, and feels as though it's um, telling good stories. Yeah, David, I'm wondering if we can conclude by maybe giving suggestions to our listeners. I'm wondering if anyone wants to pursue similar careers. Seems a little <laughs> bit unconventional, right? <laughs> so what, what would be the 
uh, I'm tempted to say the right path, but there's probably no <laughs> right path, right? But let's say there's someone listening to this and being really excited. What what would be possible possible paths? Yeah. So um, we were going through a strategic meeting earlier today, and we were trying to define <laughs> what it is that we're looking for in people now. And actually, we have. It, it's almost like we've got 100 people here in London. There's about 20 in San Francisco. And the closest thing I can get to is Mad Inventor. So somebody who <laughs> is really interested and passionate about a lot of different things. So um, we've got a great designer here, Sam Kean, and he, you know, he came from a traditional graphic design background. He's learned how to do interfaces for films he constantly researches data and new tools and, and, and just has a broader field of interest beyond design and animation that I think just makes his work really, really rich. And I would say that of everyone here, they all seem to be generalists in that they can design and animate or tell stories or storyboard or whatever it might be. But then they kind of drill down really deep into specialisms in a very mm. geeky, nerdy way. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we just look after those people <laughs> and make sure that they have everything that they need. So I think somebody with with a natural interest and intrigue in the world and, and this area of specialism, whether it be storytelling, design, data, technology, I think you need, kind of need to be across a few of those different things. I was definitely, I trained, I trained and 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 had this kind of left brain, right brain equal balance. I did art and photography, but I mixed that up with maths and physics. And I think my parents just naturally thought that I'd become an architect. You know, I think that was kind of <laughs> the, uh, the path laid out for me. And I was absolutely horrified at how long it took an architect to graduate. Um, and then even more concerned that and how long it would take for one project to be built. Yeah. So I thought maybe, you know, graphics might be a way of quickly iterating through that, um, speeding up the process. But I, but I do think that there's an equal amount of creativity and logic that's required for this, you know, real mm. intrigue and interest, but a care for creativity and craft too. And there's, it's, it, we are constantly, you know, treading that fine line between storytelling and authenticity around the data. So someone that kind of crosses those two areas would be, would be ideal for us. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you will find that profile quite often in the data visualization community. Yeah, exactly. I was about what, to say the same. What brings us all together, right? It's like well, the, the, the good news the is we're very... and the, the technical side and, and also not wanting to give up on one of those two sides. So. Yeah, well, we have a recruitment section on our website <laughs> yeah. and uh, we, we are very there. much looking for good yeah. people. So, yeah, we're very busy, very, very busy. So please cool. email in. Yeah. yeah. That would be lovely if, if a new career comes out of this podcast for somebody. Yeah. I'm hoping at least 10 people. <laughs> let we'll, we'll let us know here. if this happens. <laughs> cool. Wonderful. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. I see so many cross-connections now, and I think it's very clear that it's about much more just than just putting a few glowing rectangles on the screen somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and really wonderful what you're doing uh, with your studio, and can't wait to see the, the next few of your designs. In the meantime, thanks so much, and uh, see you soon. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey folks, thanks for listening to Data Stories again. 
Before you leave a few last notes, this show is crowdfunded and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash datastories, where we publish monthly previews of upcoming episodes for our supporters. Or you can also send us a one-time donation via PayPal at paypal.me slash datastories. Or as a free way to support the show, if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be very helpful as well. And here's some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so follow us there for the latest updates. We have also a Slack channel where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, go to our homepage at datastory.es, and there you'll find a button at the bottom of the page. And there you can also subscribe to our email newsletter if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish a new episode. That's right. And we love to get in touch with our listeners. So let us know if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or know any amazing people you want us to invite or even have any project you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Don't hesitate to get in touch. Just send us an email at mail at datastory.es. That's all for now. Hear you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories. Thank you.